If you have your Bibles, meet me back in John chapter 1. Uh, last week, we were in the first 13 verses of uh, John chapter 1. Let's look at verse 14. Speaking of Jesus, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Now, what does that glory look like, John? Glory as of the only Son from the Father, here it is, full of grace and truth. Amen. In January 1966, Martin Luther King Jr. did the unthinkable. Martin Luther King Jr. moved into an apartment in a violent neighborhood lavishing itself, rather I should say wallowing in poverty on Chicago's west side. I call this unthinkable because here it is, January 1966, Martin Luther King Jr. is at the height or the apex or the, or the zenith of his popularity and notoriety. Uh, he has just led um, uh, us into two historical acts, the signing of the Civil Rights Act and then the signing of the Voting Rights Act, two huge historical legislative accomplishments. Not only that, but Martin Luther King Jr. has just won the uh, Nobel Peace Prize, so he is gaining worldwide accolades and notoriety and, and fame, and yet Martin Luther King Jr. surveys the, the cultural milieu, and something in his heart goes, haven't done enough. He's looking at all these people who are, again, wallowing in poverty and says, I've got to now lift my eyes onto those who are impoverished, and I've got to do something. But Dr. King knew, if you know anything about his upbringing, Dr. King did grow up poor. Dr. King grew up uh, very middle class. He was um, kind of ecclesiological royalty. I grew up in Atlanta, and Dr. King grew up in one of the most, if I could use this term, uh, you understand what I'm saying, one of the most privileged uh, African-American neighborhoods in Atlanta, if such a thing existed during Jim Crow, but you get what I'm saying here. So here's Dr. King going, I've got a heart for the poor. Yes, I've accomplished a lot. I want to reach the poor, though, but, but I didn't grow up poor. So before I reach them, I must live among them. So he does the unthinkable. He moves into the ghetto. Can you imagine having Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. as your next door neighbor knocking on your door saying, hey, man, me and Coretta are going to go out of town. Can you get the mail for us? Dr. King, for all of his accolades, for all of his notoriety, for all of his popularity, moves among the lowly. 2,000 years before that, there was a greater move. God peered over the balcony of heaven, looked at us languishing in the worst kind of poverty you can have, not financial poverty. You can die, spirit, but you can buy, you can die financially broke, but if you have Christ, you are spiritually rich, but if you die financially rich but spiritually broke, that is a poverty you will never overcome. So here's God looking out over the balcony of heaven. He sees us languishing in spiritual poverty, and God does the unthinkable. 
John tells us in verse 14 that God takes on flesh and dwells among us, that he moves into the neighborhood to walk with us and talk with us and relate with us and ultimately die for us that we might live and reign with him for all of eternity. That is the message of Christmas. But not only is that the message of Christmas, as if eternal life wasn't enough, along the way, what Jesus does for us is he satisfies the deepest longings of our souls. Jesus satisfies us far more than any car can satisfy us, far more than any amount of dollars can satisfy us. I'll talk some more about this tonight, but here I am playing golf with my neighbor. He's an extremely accomplished man, member of this privileged country club, and we're on, we're on the back nine, and he's just asking me questions, and, and he's talking to me about, about faith and religion. He says, well, well, Brian, why would you call yourself a Christian? Because I told him there are some things in life, in fact, nothing in life will satisfy us more than Christ can. I said to him, it's interesting that some of the most miserable people I know are at the same time, paradoxically, some of the most accomplished people I know. And he said to me, I'll never forget, he was hitting his shot out of the bunker. He says, now that's a true statement. At this country club where you've got to pay $250,000 to join, he says, not satisfied. Lee Atwater would agree with my neighbor. If you're into politics, you know who Lee Atwater is. He's long been dead. He was a powerful Republican strategist, accrued a lot of money, power, prestige, but at a young age, he was stricken with brain cancer. On his deathbed, he dictated these words, words that would be published in Life magazine. Look at them with me. Listen to what he says. Long before I was struck with cancer, I felt something stirring in, in American society. It was a sense among the people of the country, Republicans and Democrats alike, I love it, that something was missing from their lives, something crucial. But I wasn't exactly sure what it was. Here he is with brain cancer. He says, my illness helped me to see that what was missing in society is what was missing in me. The 80s were about acquiring, acquiring wealth and power and prestige and Stonewashed jeans and members-only jackets. <laughs> I know I acquired more wealth, he says, power and prestige than most. I love this line. But you can acquire all you want and still feel empty. What power wouldn't I trade for a little more time with my family? What price wouldn't I pay for an evening with friends? Took a deadly illness to put me eye to eye with that truth. But it is a truth that the country caught up in its ruthless ambitions and moral decay can learn on my dime. I don't know who will lead us through the 90s, but they must be made to speak to this spiritual, I love it, this spiritual vacuum at the heart of American society, this tumor of the soul. I talk to my sons about this all the time tell you about Jaden. Jaden loves basketball. We call him RP around our house, retirement plan. 
no, no pressure, son. No, no pressure. I am keeping a tally, though, of all that I'm spending on you. Um, but I always tell him, your identity can't be in basketball. Don't be a basketball player who happens to be a Christian. Be a Christian who happens to play basketball. Don't be a business person who happens to be a Christian. Be a Christian who happens to be a business person. Don't be a wife who happens to be a Christian. Be a Christian who happens to be a wife. May our identity be in nothing else than Christ in Christ alone. That is the message of Christmas. What are you going to do when you get a knee injury? What are you, what are you going to do when you retire? What, what, what are you going to do when the business uh, lays you off? What are you, what are you going to do? This vacuum of the soul, he says. I want us now to turn our attention to one verse. William Barclay says this is the most pregnant verse in all of Scripture. I could take weeks, literally, preaching on this one verse. It is the most important verse when it comes to understanding the incarnation of Jesus Christ, this idea of God taking on flesh. John chapter 1, verse 14, gives us three powerful truths about the incarnation. We're going to learn something about the statement of the incarnation. Then we're going to walk through the significance of the incarnation. And then we're going to end with the sign of the incarnation. And along the way, we are going to see that these truths are profoundly meaningful for how we live our lives. Before we can get there, I want to give you a little bit of biblical context so you understand the potency of this verse. The culmination of salvation history is Jesus Christ. In Genesis chapter 1, God steps in and God has a plan. He decides to accomplish his purposes here on earth through a man named Adam. He says, Adam, I have charged you to exercise dominion over the earth. Adam, I'm going to give you a help meet, your wife, and you all are going to exercise dominion together. Uh, this woman is not going to be beneath you or not going to be above you. In fact, to symbolize this, Adam, I'm going to take something not out of your head or out of your feet. I'm going to take something to fashion her that comes from your side. Parenthetically, uh, men, if you should ever get married, you should know. I say this at every wedding that I do, that you're not getting another mama to lord over you, nor are you getting an administrative assistant to help you fulfill your life. You are getting someone who is going to stand by your side. It is not some woman who's going to be behind you to make you great. She's going to be right there with you. So here's what I want you to do, Adam. One thing, one prohibition, don't eat of this one tree. Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve decide that God wasn't sufficient enough for them, so they decide that they are going to find sufficiency and fulfillment outside of God, independent of God, and they eat of the tree. Sin now enters into the world, score one for evil. A couple chapters later, Genesis chapter 6, God says, all right, I'm going to now move from a man to a family. Noah, we're going to hit reset on the hard drive of this world, and I'm going to wipe everything out through a flood. I'm going to start over, and I'm going to use your family to accomplish my redemptive purposes here on earth. 
So this is what happens, and then sin enters the world through severe acts of perversion through Noah's family. Genesis chapter 12, God says, all right, I tried it with a man, that didn't work. I tried it with a family, that didn't work. Now I'm going to try it with a nation. He comes to a man named Abram, and he says, Abram, I'm going to make you a father of many peoples. This is your call, and to symbolize that call, I'm now going to change your name. You're going to be Abraham. Your people are going to be as numerous as the stars of the universe and the, the grains of sand on the seashore. I'm going to make of you a great nation. The rest of the Old Testament is God trying to accomplish his redemptive purposes through the seed of Abraham that we know to be the Jews. And yet it's failure after failure after failure after failure after failure. Now the New Testament opens up and God says in so many words, I tried it with a man, that didn't work. I tried it with a family, that didn't work. I tried it with a nation, that didn't work. So let me come on down and take care of this thing myself. So he sends his son, Jesus Christ, who takes on flesh and dwells among us. This is the statement of the incarnation. John begins by saying that the word, speaking of Jesus, became flesh, that God became man. This is hard for us to contemplate. It is hard for our finite minds to grasp this infinite truth that God would condescend and would become flesh. In AD 451, the Council of Chalcedon gathered together to try to unpack and explain the incarnation. They bequeathed to us an incredible statement called the hypostatic union. It simply is this. They said that Jesus Christ is fully God, fully man, in one person, without mixture. In other words, Jesus Christ wasn't 70% God, 30% man. He wasn't 60% God, 40% man. He wasn't 90% God, 10% man. He was at all times fully God, fully man, in one person without mixture. Don't try to comprehend it. By faith, believe and accept it. This is the incarnation. Now, Pastor Bryant, what does this have to do with how I'm going to live my life when the alarm clock goes on a couple days from now and i got to roll out of bed and go to work? What does the incarnation of Jesus Christ, this idea that he's fully God, fully man, apply to how I live? Oh, it means everything. If you read the Gospels, you see this incredible paradox always happening. <laughs> I love it. As a man, we see him at times getting hungry. But as God, we see him feeding the multitudes with a few pieces of fish and a few loaves of bread. As man, we see him getting thirsty on the cross. He cries, I thirst. But as God, we see him giving living water. As man, we see him in one scene knocked out asleep in the middle of a boat in the middle of a storm. But as God, we see him get up and still the storm. The writer of Hebrews says, as man that we have a high priest who can empathize with our weaknesses, who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. In other words, whatever it is you're going through, Jesus can say, I know how that feels. Whatever it is you're tempted with, Jesus says, been there, done that, got the T-shirt and the hat. And yet, not only was he tempted, but the writer of Hebrews says, as God, he did not sin. In other words, as a man, he can relate to my struggles 
But as God, he's worthy of my worship because he didn't succumb to my struggles and can give me the victory I need to make it through my struggles. That is the God man. Oh, I want a God like that. I, I, I didn't come to church to, to worship an ordinary man. I, I came to worship the God man. He can relate to me. If I can just get real earthy. If I get on my knees one day and I say, Jesus, I'm, I'm really struggling right now. I've, I've been tempted to, to look at a woman inappropriately. If I read Hebrews right, Jesus said, yep, I know what that feels like. Now, y'all ain't shouting on that one, huh? He was tempted, not in some things, in all things, as we are, yet without sin. That is the God-man. That is the statement of the incarnation, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, but now he moves to the significance of the incarnation. I love this. He says that the word became flesh, I love it, and dwelt among us. Look at this. Uh, the message, which is a paraphrase, I wouldn't necessarily use this as the primary uh, text in which you read scriptures from, but it is a rather entertaining paraphrase that Eugene Peterson came out with years ago. This is how Eugene Peterson translates this verse. Look at it with me on the screen. He says, the word became flesh and blood and moved it to the neighborhood. I love that. Jesus steps into humanity and moves into our neighborhood. In fact, in the original language John is writing with Hebrew, that word dwelt among us, what Eugene Peterson says, moved into the neighborhood. It's a word that literally means, hear it now, to pitch your tent. This is interesting because what John is doing right now is he is calling on Old Testament imagery. Some of you, maybe you've read this section of the scriptures. In the book of Exodus, when the children of Israel leave Egypt and they are making their way to the promised land, they spend 40 years in the wilderness, and God says, Moses, I want you to construct a temporary dwelling place for me called the tabernacle. Now, here's all you need to know about the tabernacle. It is a large tent. In this large tent, God actually would come down and consume this tent with his presence. It is where Moses met with God, the tent of meeting. It is where priests offered sacrifices to God. That is where God, in the Old Testament, pitched his tent. Now, in the New Testament, here is John. He is using that imagery that God takes on the tent of humanity and for 33 years would walk among lowly humanity. And John is saying, I, I didn't read about him. I'm not telling you what I heard. I'm not telling you hearsay. I saw him. That's why I believe in Christianity, because Christianity has eyewitnesses. We saw him. We saw him. We saw him. He, he took on flesh and he dwelt among us that God would condescend and take on lowly flesh. Blows my mind. 
I don't watch a lot of TV. That's not a spiritual statement. It's kind of how, how I'm wired. I'm, I'm highly introverted. I've, I've pretty much always enjoyed reading. Uh, even growing up, I uh, was never a big TV person. That's not a spiritual statement. I've just That's just kind of how I'm wired. But a couple years ago, there was a television show that I absolutely loved called Undercover Boss. Anybody here ever watch that television show? Yeah, Undercover Boss. I don't know if any of y'all were actually profiled on it, but Undercover Boss. I love it. And, and the basic premise of the show is, is that there were certain times in which the CEO of the company, in order to get a grassroots feel for her company, would come out from behind their desk in their corner office and would exchange their coat and tie or their suit to take on uh, uh, the uniform, the outfit that their, their, their employees would wear and would spend a week or two out on the retail floor with the employees, kind of in disguise. They, they wouldn't know that this was the boss just walking with them. I, I remember one episode and it just captivating my attention. It was an episode of a waste management, a, a garbage company in which the CEO wanted to get a grassroots feel for his garbage company. So, so he exchanges his coat and tie. He comes out of the corner office from behind the desk and for two weeks hops on the back of a garbage truck with, with his colleagues. And he's there doing the lowly task of collecting garbage. And when he finally revealed himself. They, they could not believe it that the CEO would condescend so low as to collect garbage. But there's a greater irony that God, the CEO of the universe, would get a grassroots feel for our experience, would come out from the corner office sequestered there in heaven, would take on flesh and would walk with us, would, would do dinner with tax collectors and prostitutes and adulterers and greedy people. That is the significance. No job is too dirty. No person is too dirty. I love this. Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, speaking of the incarnation, Paul says this, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Watch it now. Which is, I love it, I love it, I love it, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Wrap your minds around this concept. Let it sink in. When Jesus goes back to heaven, he gets rid of his human tent. But when you got saved, Jesus now moves into your heart, which means you are wearing Jesus. You wear Jesus as you go out on that date on Friday night. You wear Jesus as you walk across the quad and sit in that classroom. You wear Jesus when you go to work. You, you wear Jesus when you come to church. You wear Jesus at that restaurant. Christ is in you. Wow. 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 go home on this. Statement of the incarnation, the significance of the incarnation. Finally, verse 14, he gives us the sign of the incarnation. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, moved into the neighborhood. And we have 
seen, not heard about, not read about, we've seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We're almost out of here. It's 11.08. This is record time. It says, we've seen his glory. Now, what is glory? Glory is the visible manifestation of the attributes of God. Glory is the visible manifestation of the attributes of God. This text takes me back to the book of Exodus again. God and Moses are having this conversation and God is ticked off. God is filled with righteous indignation. He's filled with righteous indignation because while God and Moses are talking, the people of God are down at the base of the mountain worshiping another God. God is upset because God is saying in so many words, this other God didn't open up the Red Sea and free you from Egypt. I brought you out. And you have the nerve to cheat on me with a false God? With a God who ain't done nothing for you? He says, no, nah, Moses, I'm done. Moses says, God, you can't be done. You gave us your word. God says, okay, Moses, here's what we'll do. I'll let you go on ahead to the promised land. I just ain't going with you. Moses says, God, I'm not trying to be disrespectful. I ain't trying to annoy you, but that ain't working for me. Because if you don't go with me, it ain't worth it. God says, okay, Moses, I'll go with you. Moses says, God, again, I, I hope I'm not overstepping my bounds, but I hear you. I just need a sign. God says, Moses, what's on your mind? Moses says, show me your glory. God chuckles and says, boy, you don't know what you're talking about. Because no one can see my glory and live. So here's what I'm going to do, Moses. I'm going to put you in the cleft of a rock. I'm going to shield my face from you, and I'll let you see my back or my exhaust. You can't see my face, but I'll, I'll let you catch a glimpse of me. So here's Moses. He's hiding out in the cleft of the rock. Can you imagine this scene? And Moses sees the back of God. He is just asked to show me your glory. And what does he see of God? He sees, the text says, his goodness, his compassion, his patience, his loving kindness. What is the glory of God? It is the visible manifestation of his attributes. Watch this. John understands this, and he pulls on this imagery. John says, I'm not telling you what I heard. I saw him, and I saw his glory. Well, the question is, what does his glory look like? Grace and truth. Grace and truth. 
The glory of Jesus Christ, John says, is that Jesus Christ incarnated in equitable portions, grace and truth. Parenthetically, if I could come to your house right now and put my feet up on your coffee table, I would say this. If you want to be a glorious Christian in the ilk of Jesus Christ, then somehow, some way, learn to incarnate grace and truth. In fact, if you want to read a wonderful book on this, read Randy Alcorn's little book. You can read it in about an hour called The Grace and Truth Paradox. It is a phenomenal view. If you're here today and you would say, I'm not a Christian, but, but what, what should a Christian look like? Grace and truth. Grace and truth. Grace and truth. Watch it now. It is impossible to have grace without truth. You and I live in a culture, and this is really popular in the Bay, that has a distorted view and definition of grace. Our culture seeks to give you grace without truth. Grace without truth ain't grace, it's tolerance. Grace cannot exist without truth. If I walk in the house one day and I say to my kids, let's go get ice cream, that ain't grace. It's just me being a a decent, benevolent father. But if I walk in the house one day, as has happened before, and their mama says, I ain't too happy, well, sweetheart, what's wrong? Because when you ain't happy, ain't nobody happy up in here. She says, well, we just got a note from one of the teachers that one of our kids has been disrespectful and has been lying, has been violating the conduct code at at school. And I look at that kid and say, is that true? And they say, yes, dad, it is. And then I say to them, to their shock, let's go get ice cream. That's grace. Why? Because they have clearly violated a standard of truth. And my grace is seen as giving them something they do not deserve. Well, how do you know you don't deserve it unless you fail to measure up? You cannot have grace without truth. Our world is looking for truth. Truth can't be found on Fox News. Truth can't be found on MSNBC. Truth cannot be found on CNN. You might get opinions that ain't truth. And if I miss one of the networks, please, just, I don't know. Email me at Keith at ALCF.net. You can't get truth on Facebook. I was sitting on an airplane not too long ago and was having a conversation with a young lady next to me, sharing with her uh, about the good news of Jesus Christ. The plane lands, she turns on her, on her phone, goes straight to Facebook, and now seeks to tell me some latest news event as if it's gospel truth that she's pulled off of Facebook. We live in a society that is gullible enough to believe that if it's on the internet, it must be true. We live in a society that would rather read a blog written by a fallible 30-something-year-old man sitting in his boxers in his mama's basement than the timeless, eternal Word of God. Too many people will retweet blogs but we'll come up with scientific arguments for why a document thousands of years old 
isn't true. Grace without truth is compromise. Truth without grace is condemnation. We need both. We need both. To be a Christian means I walk in grace and truth. My wife and I, as I've shared with you, we've got this couple we've been hanging out with. And dear couple, they don't know Christ as Lord and Savior. Uh, they happen to be living in the gay lifestyle. We shock them. They're over the house all the time. And we're enjoying one another. Um, you know, they, they, they took pictures of us at their house blessing. I, I think my wife and I were the only straight couple there at their house. And um, they tagged us on Facebook. And uh, then I get falsely accused of, you know, I got, I got the reputation of uh, someone says, and it's their words, uh, we, this pastor parties with homosexuals. I'm like, thank you very much because the, the Jesus I know partied with people he disagreed with. But that's a whole nother thing. So grace, 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 grace. But then one of them says to me, yeah, we'd love for you, Brian, to do our vow renewal service. And I'm going to have to say to them, I love you very much. but I operate by a different standard. Keep coming over, just keep hanging out, but it can get very uncomfortable, this tension of grace with truth. I even felt it on the golf course the other day where I just felt like, and even I, I hate these moments with non-believers where it's, it's, it's for way I'm wired. It's easy for me to show grace and grace and grace and grace and grace and grace. And finally the Holy Spirit said, well, we're going to get to the truth. What is truth? Glad you asked. John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the truth, the truth, the truth, and the life. What does it mean to walk in truth? It means I give them Jesus. We walk in truth. Grace. And truth. Grace fundamentally means that, that we've all blown it. That we are great sinners. But we've got a great Savior. Grace means that none of us gets to heaven on our own moral strivings. Grace means that if we were to open up everybody's closets up in here, up in here, we've all got stuff. So how dare you thumb your nose? Someone who's had a gender reassignment done. How dare you thumb your nose? at a person caught in adultery. How dare you thumb your nose at Matt Lauer or Harvey Weinstein? When the truth be told, you ain't been no angel at work yourself. How dare you thumb your nose at Tiger Woods? When the truth be told, let God put a billion dollars in your hands and make you the most recognizable person on the planet. And when you look at her, she actually looks back. Let's see how you do with that one. 
Some of y'all ain't sinned because you ain't had the opportunity. told you this. I don't know how long I plan on being. I plan on being here uh, the 30, 40 years from now, but we are going to put a full court press on legalism. So save the emails about how her skirt was too short. Save the emails about how they were inappropriately dressed. Save those emails for me. Everybody has something on their resume, and everybody can come up in here and learn about Jesus. This is a grace place. So you got something, I got something, all God's children got something. In the early morning hours of January 4th, 1994, Wesley Allen Dodd was executed for the torture the molestation and murder of three young boys. What he did to these young boys does not even bear repeating. The gallery was packed for his execution. Once the execution was over, the jailer walks out and says that Mr. Wesley Allen Dodd's last request was that he would have this note read to you all. A portion of the note said this, this man who had tortured, molested, and murdered three young boys, he says, I had thought there was no hope and no peace. I was wrong. I have found hope and peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. The gallery gasped audibly. What do you mean? He's not in heaven. Do you know what he's done? One was actually on record as saying he does not deserve heaven. True, but neither do you. I want to be careful here. Sexual assault. He should have spent time in jail, or I don't know where you are in capital punishment, but in some way he should legislatively pay for his crimes. Justice and grace can commingle. But the God I know says there is no sin that stains me so deeply that the blood of Jesus cannot get out. If you're uncomfortable with this, you don't know grace. You don't know grace. In 1987, an 18-month-old girl, you know her, baby Jessica, fell 22 feet into a Texas well. For 55 grueling hours, her rescuers worked to salvage her life. For 55 hours, they toiled, and they struggled, and they strategized. Finally, 55 hours later, they pulled her out. 
Baby Jessica's testimony will never be. I crawled my way out. Her testimony will never be. I scratched my way out. Her testimony will never be. I pulled myself out. Her testimony will be. I was in a hopeless, helpless situation with no other recourse and someone else pulled me out. That's grace. And that's all of us in here. Eternal life does not happen because we were good boys and good girls. Eternal life doesn't happen because we came to church on Christmas Eve Sunday. We were all baby Jessica trapped in the well of our own sin. But the word became flesh. Dwelt among us. Pulled us out. Boy, if I was in a chocolate church right now, I don't know what my key is, but I got one. Here's my fear for you. Someone's here today, you don't know Christ Jesus. Here's my fear for you. Here's my fear for you. If you look at the bay, two top ten lists that we're constantly on, San Jose, San Francisco, top ten most affluent, most expensive place to live, a lot of wealth here, and top ten most secular, most irreligious. Money and ignoring God go hand to hand. You are just one recession away. So if you're living high on the hog, that's grace. It's God's common grace to you. God's message, he brought you here today to say Christ has been sent into the world to rescue you. Would you say yes to Jesus? There is, as Lee Atwater says, a tumor, a vacuum in our soul that no amount of money can fill, only God can fill it. Will you say yes to Jesus.